welcome to On the Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. So my guest this week is the iconic Christopher Guy. Christopher, thank you for taking the time to sit down with us today. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today. (laughs) Thank you. So, um, you recently made an unusual announcement. Um, That's right. Can you share that with our audience? Well, I said, yeah, at his last uh, market here in High Point, um, I I noticed that um, I had a few odd pains in my legs (laughs) and I was coughing more. And uh, by the end of November, I sort of decided to get it sorted out. And I was was noted that I had a um, stage four, um, ultimately a terminal uh, lung cancer. So it had to arrange my life a little bit <laughs> and the business. So a lot of changes, which I always see as positive. I don't look at them as negative. And I always said to myself, well, 58 years doing what I really wanted to do um, is not a bad year. So I was always, I think I was always fearful of getting too old. And so I thought, well, 58 years, that's a nice, that's a nice age, you know. So. I had a, a lot of things to put into place and I, luckily I've got a great team and I've done already so much design work which carries us forward many years. But we had to, um, had to re-look at the business because the US market makes up about 30% of what CG is, is uh, in sales and had to run to, to, to view what was the future of the way that CG would evolve in the United States. So. It was quite a suddenly a lot of things had to come in. The good thing about it, I w- originally I wasn't going to do any chemotherapy. I thought, well, because when I asked the, uh, yeah, when I spoke to the doctor, he said, well, if you don't do anything, we'll give you three to four months. If you do the chemo, m- maybe you get up to 10 months. And I thought, well, initially, if they're going to give me 10 months, um, why bother? <laughs> you have all these horror stories about chemo. So I said, originally I wasn't going to do anything. and. Um, um, I, 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 I married very late in my life. In fact, I married in December 26. <laughs> and my wife, um, I, we have a little boy together. And uh, I was, my arm was getting twisted so much to start chemo. So I decided, I, I think I started chemo on the 28th in Singapore, where I went back to live, uh, where I've been from actually 25 years in Asia. And I decided that I had a familiarity that I've like. So um, I was getting my treatment um, we're done through there. So, but um, never any, I never, never thought, oh my God, this is terrible, why me? No, I think it was, oh yes. I, 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 you know, we had a survived a, a, a huge car crash in uh, 2010. I always thought, well, anything after that, <laughs> <laughs> um, count myself as very lucky, and I have. So I really have no regrets at all. Um, and one regret was the thing that actually chemo has allowed me to do is to really ensure that the, the cause it's, um, there's a lot of things to sort out if we, um, within a business and not only that, within my own family trust and how I arranged that. So there was a lot of things I had to do, but I'm very confident having had these all these extra months that I'm being able to put things into place to really to ensure the well-being of the company and the brand moving forward. So, um, who will be taking over my role was actually someone um, from the film industry, who's the director in the film industry. He's an old friend uh, who I've known since I was at school, since I was uh, nine years old. His name's Tony Mitchell. His, uh, we were met um, when I was living in the Canary Islands. Um, my stepfather was Spanish, my mother is English. And <coughs> we went from the Canary Islands when I was nine years old. Uh, um, when I went moved back to England, uh, my friend uh, Tony, he came into the same primary school as I was, and he had come from Canada, his father's Canadian, his mother was British. So we had something in common because we had an international outlook on life. And um, I, I'd been living in California for the last two years, and he was filming over there, so we, we really got to, you know, to work on, or to, to get to, to meet each other a lot more. And when this condition came upon board, I immediately thought, who could take over my role? It's, um, because I, I do the design, I do pretty much everything, whether it be 
designing of the, the showroom or the, the architecture or the, the factory or the products that I still do everything on those areas and said uh, but how do you manage all these things I didn't want need a general manager I needed someone who was who could knew how to put a film production together and so the way that he puts his films together was in the way that he organizes um, a, a team was uh, was instrumental for him to come on board and in addition to that um, I brought on board uh, someone from the luxury area, luxury from um, previously. I know from um, who was working heavily with the, with the LVMH group in the positioning of their stores um, within something called um, uh, DFS, which is duty-free shopping. You see it in the international airports around the world. So I needed someone who understood the branding on the international side, not only for CG, but the we have a software. I have a software company called Java Valley, and Java Valley is where we create marketplaces. And so, when I bring on uh, brands, sell um, like-minded companies, I needed that expertise to be able to put that together. So there's a, a lot of little bits of the puzzle that need to be done before um, before I could sign off and think, so I've done my job now. <laughs> so yeah. Well, let's look back to the beginning of your career. Mm -hmm. What do you remember as your first? memories of wanting to design or feeling that that was something that was meant for you? I, I think really a lot of it really can go back to my life in, um, I mean when I was at school I didn't realize it. I mean I never, st I left school at 16, I never studied design. Um, I had um, an interest in beautiful things. I had it was an exposure to the continental life. Um, my stepfather and my mother said they were going to build a house in, uh, from the ground up in Provence in the south of France. So I said, do I want to build it with them? So we, my, both my stepfather and myself, we built it from the, the ground up in a little village called Tarado in uh, Provence, which is still there because I was looking on Google Maps the other day and the satellite view and the house is exactly as still there as it was. That introduced me to design, to proportions, and above all, uh, then after that, I think I was 17 or 18, the little money that they gave me for all my hard work there, <laughs> I opened up a pop-up store in um, Juan Le Pin, which is right, is, uh, right on the coast, right next to Cannes, in the south of France. And that, I put together a store which was doing like what they called pub mirrors in those days, which were like mirrors and they had like sell Coca-Cola or all that more. So it was something that they was, that's what they called pub mirrors. And then I would do like um, interesting artifacts and some interesting posters. And I put that in, and it's actually printing of t-shirts, you know, the old printing machines that used to. Um, so I did that as a store, as a pop-up store during this, this summer season. I'm trying to think of the year, <laughs> like in probably 1980, it was 19, no, sorry, 1978 around that period, 78, 79, thereabouts. And that, what I looked at there is what, when it's to, because I didn't have a driving license, I think I said walk to Cannes, which is about, I don't know, maybe a five mile walk, walking down there, and it inspired me when you see the beautiful yacht, you see the lifestyle. So I was, I was on the other side of it, I could look and admire everything that was beautiful. Um, I wasn't part of it, all I do could was see it. So, but I think that inspired me about proportion and, and, and style, and. Um, and really, I, then I, I went into buying and uh, selling houses, you know, so renovating I could use until the huge property crash happened around 89. I think in the United States it happened the same time as Britain and interest rates went through the roof. And in my young age, then I was you know, pretty much wiped out. So I had to all start over again. And um, a friend of mine was doing uh, reproduction furnishings in a town called Bournemouth, which is one of those old English seaside towns in the south of England. And uh, he was doing the English reproduction um, furnishings, you know, 18th century, Chippendale, etc. I was always amazed by the quality of what they were able to reproduce. <laughs> and um, so um, I studied in my mind um, what they were able to do. I knew so it was coming from Indonesia. I thought, wow, that's coming from Indonesia. But it was really perfect reproduction work. Not that I was interested in the reproduction work, but I thought it was perfect. I went and moved to Spain in um, 1992, um, where I'd lived before, so I went to Madrid. And it just so happened that same friend who, who was uh, operating that store of reproduction furnishing in Bournemouth, 
he came over to Madrid and said to me, he said, Chris, can you help me? Because I'm visiting a Corte Inglés, which is one of the stores over there. And um, could I please help translate for him? So I said, sure. So I went over there. Um, and on the second visit, I was looking to see, just looking around the store. It was a beautiful store. It was one of the, um, there was a specialist store for Corte Inglés because Corte Inglés is a very big group, a bit like Sears of Spain. Um, but this was a specialized furniture store which had higher end furnishings. And I was looking at these mirrors on the wall and uh, the manager said, oh, I said, where did they come from? He said, oh, these, men, these come from a company in Italy called Cellini. Cellini, you're going to, actually it's pronounced Cellini, but you would read it as Cellini if you're in English. And I looked at these beautiful mirrors and <coughs> I, said, <coughs> I said, how much do they work on? And he told me the price. I said, really? <laughs> so I remember I went home and I'd started dating um, uh, my Martha Gill, which is then my Spanish girlfriend, still a great friend. And I said, Martha, I said, no, what are you going to do? And she said, what? So we're going to create the finest mirror company in the world. And that's how it started. But I had no money. <laughs> <laughs> Never built a mirror in my life. Had no furniture making experience. Uh, and I had never been to Indonesia or Asia in my life. Uh, didn't speak Indonesian. So if you've put everything, what you had, you had to have youthful and been a, a naive at a, a youthful age. I wasn't that youthful. I think I was 31 years old. Martha was 21 years old. And so really we got a plane ticket to Indonesia, <coughs> really not knowing what to expect. And um, just but with uh, a mission really. And, I stayed in a little carving village uh, for five years um, until we created that, that collection. Um, and I think mirrors were, um, mirrors were easy because I, I don't know, I, but what a thing I never did, I never looked at another mirror company. So a company like Cellini or Cellini, I admired what they did, but I would never copy them. I said, they've done a brilliant work on what they've done. How do I reinvent what I think is in, in mirrors? And so I would look at anything other than mirrors. And so, because a lot of that time it would have been traditional. And I said, well, I, why does it have it? It said, really is a jewel. It's a bit like a piece of jewelry. So when I was designing, I was always looking at things as more of like a piece of jewelry. Then later I got into making, um, bringing the lifestyle collection together, which was a very different project. Because a, a mirror frame is two-dimensional, whereas a, a chair is three-dimensional and it's functional and has a lot more. So when I was doing that, I said, okay, what is the look that I'm trying to achieve? And I said, well, I've always admired a lot of the French designers of the 1920s. I always admired the, the French designers, whether it be Chanel or, or Dior and what they want. I said, well, if we're going to create something, it should be the Chanel of the furnishings industry. So that's where really we're positioning it. And so that was the, with the goal. And so um, yeah, starting with um, uh, some ch uh, chairs, um, dining chairs, I would look at um, some of the dining chairs when I started was how do I, if I wanted a tight waist, how do I keep that? So part of it was inspired by watching like Gone with the Wind and you know the, the corseted waistline, but then that would bring you in a stability issue. So that's, uh, I said, well, what if I take the ballerina pose and do a crisscross? So I come down and with a crisscross legs. And um, that's how that came about. So the crisscross um, was legs then became a signature item of the brand and so then building everything else around it really in an ideal world i would have just stayed with probably more mirror frames decor lifestyle because it you're manufacturing because you manufacture everything in-house and your manufacturing is taking on so many directions it's a bit like a factory that would take on bicycles and building trucks and the buses and cars all in one so it's not ideal because um, um, you're very much more bespoke in the way you build things. But I've never, I could never do things which were just um, sort of cheap and cheerful. I never, not that I'm not price-wise, I think we are you know, very competitive. But um, so I, was, I never, it was not about volume. It was about really doing something which I enjoyed and where there was that uh, niche in the market. Um, Tell me about your first trip to Indonesia. What were your first impressions? You landed there, you'd never been there. <clears throat> I think Indonesia has a lot um, changed. Well, the first is in today is you know, these, there were 190 million people when I arrived. Today there's 260 million people. So the, the, the population is rising. Um, and there is more of um, it's changed. Uh, it has changed. I, in many ways, 
I think the people have always been fabulous, incredible, very humble, um, and really been, been fabulous to work with. Um, and around Asia, you have different, because you have Philippine, you have Vietnamese, you have Chinese, in terms of manufacturing capabilities. But for what I did, I needed the carving skills and I needed the, 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 the sourcing, because everything we do is hand-carved wood. So I needed the, uh, the availability of the uh, mahogany, which was, um, which was actually brought over to Indonesia by the Dutch. Um, so it was used more plantation wood. Um, I mean, it, I can never say if I, when I go back there, I was like back there a few weeks ago. And I think, my God, how did you ever, what were you thinking? <laughs> you know, because it's, it's um, but you know, like I said, it's, it's uh, I think why do people climb Everest or whatever? I mean, my case was that um, I had nowhere else to turn. I was already 31 years old. I said I'd better start you know, sorting things out in my life pretty fast because uh, I couldn't have. I'd been through them when the big recessions happened. And those were big in that's in 1989-80 because the interest rates killed everybody. I think we were at 16% in our industry. It's not the industry in the um, in. Um, in the property industry, so mortgages, so it was just had, we just went, you know, it was just nobody was buying anything and prices plummeted. So I was very wary of that, and um, so I started off just slowly building, building. And in, in Indonesia, we had the, what was then the 1998 Asia crisis, where financial crisis, and that allowed me to buy when the local currency plummeted, uh, I think, fivefold against the US dollar. It allowed me to buy a lot of land over there in Indonesia, and then I set out to build what I would say. I've always said that if whatever I build or work, if I would not want to work there, I would never expect anybody else to, uh, to wish to work there. And um, so I built it in a Moorish, so really having a lot of time in Spain um, in, uh, in um, the, the style. I wanted something which could be related in a marketing view to the international market what they would imagine workshops would look like, but also that fitted into which was primarily um, a Muslim environment. Um, so um, even though it's uh, Indonesia is a secular society, there was still a lot of, uh, you know, it's primarily, is, and even more so recently, unfortunately, but um, it's um, lost a bit of its um, Javanese um, culture um, to today's modernism. but. And where we are working, it's really is a, an environment. It's like very much a family environment, and we, 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 you know, we. I think the highest amount of we've ever gone up to is like two thousand craftspeople, but we hover around fifteen hundred uh, craftspeople today, and um, and I say that as an experience is always my number one experience in life. It taught me so much um, about life itself, um, and. Actually, it's one of those things that I have my workshops in, uh, in uh, with Lisa and Samurai in Java, and there's a beautiful gardens there which we made some time ago. Well, when we built, when I built the facility, it was completed in 1999, and um, there's a place I said, well, this is where I want my ashes to go, which is like this little area in a, in an area which is very much in a Cordoba, like a, a Cordoba um, uh, area, which is you know the. Um, the Cordobese, Cordoba, I don't know if it's but in Cordoba, Spain, there's, a, there's, there's uh, the arches which are, you know, uh, which uh, you'd immediately recognize this right from the Cordoba Cathedral of Cam Mosque in Spain. So I, I uh, so I'm always, so, so I would say that's given me more than anything else in my life. It was never easy. I don't think, I'm not too sure it could be reproduced today um, because Asia is, everything has gone up in, in cost. Um, but it was um, it was a once in a lifetime uh, experience. I'm happy I did it. Um, it was certainly challenging. Um, there was easier ways to make a living. <laughs> um, but yeah, when you look back, I said it has given me um, so much. And as much as uh, you look at the journey, I said, and the journey has been fabulous. So yeah. And you live in Singapore now. Or that's yeah, Singapore has um, been my little hub because it's um, Singapore is um, you know those historic. It was used to be an ex-British colony. Um, not that I went there because it had been an ex-British colony, 
but I went there because of this level of organization and um, it's highly organized. It's very good for taxation. It's very good for um, recruiting of my, my baggage. So it has an, and it was also an English and Chinese speaking community. So we have, um, I think, 11 stores in China. Um, and China is an important market for us. So I could, you know, I was close to my manufacturing. My manufacturing was just an hour and a half flight away. Um, so we, we again keeping everything. Everything is in house. Um, so Singapore was good for me. But I say it's um, our offices here in the U.S. are in uh, West Hollywood, um, and um, so I said, to, you know, every every little part brings something to the table of importance and one really can't do without the other. Who were the first customers or the first customer for your work? I think when you make something, I was amazed that anyone would come <coughs> I was always making excuses of look. I, I'm always said to be the worst salesman in the world because I'll always tell people why not to buy something that I've just made or something like that. I said, well, look, wait till the next m market and it'll, uh, it'll be improved. And, and everyone said, what are you doing? How could you say that? I said, because I can, you, if you're a designer, you, you're never really happy with whatever you've done. So you can always find ways to improve everything, but just that's the worst, uh, you know, it's, it makes you the worst salesperson in the world. And um, so I said, I, I, you know, I said, uh, I've said I've never sold a thing. I said in, the, in, the, in a showroom like this, I spend my day talking to everybody, which is <laughs> chatting, but my contribution is not great. You know, so, um, uh, so my first customers actually were here um, yesterday were Greek customers who are still the longest running Greek cu customers and um, of my, those days was mirror frames and so they still buy mirror frames in fact they sent me a picture of the first mirror frame that they bought and it's just still in their house and uh, so they are retailers in in, um, in, uh, in the United States we used to come down we used to do things like the interhall in, um, in where we first started and through um, 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 uh, a company once um, um, a mother, uh, sorry, a father and son once came to Indonesia and were basically on the door, loved what I did and asked that they could carry it in the United States, which was then a Dolphin Mirror company. They hadn't, so they set up a company called Dolphin Mirror. And it was exclusively so what we were doing. And um, I think, you know, they, um, I think they did a very good job. I mean, what they were doing, a nice, um, it was a nice family business, but we to expand, we needed to wasn't really to expand to make efficiencies. You know, we had to invest a lot of money into the U.S. Um, to make it, and the only way we really could do that was you know taking on the market ourselves directly, and that was uh, well, how many years? Actually, the Christopher Guy brand is only 11 years old, so it's not a, before that was Harris and Gill. And Harrison Gill in the United States was sold under Dauphin Mirror, so um, and um, so it's evolved, you know, and um, um, everything's evolved in the industry. I mean, now we have really moving. We have a technology company. We do heavily online um, because people aren't traveling in the way that they once did to go and see the shows. So we, online, we so our aim is really towards the high net worth individuals. And, um, and I think when we talk high net worth, it's interesting because you know you could buy. Mm, what is what does luxury mean? Um, you know, we, uh, ten years ago you didn't have RH. Well, they were there, but they were selling taps, you know, and and bathroom wares. But now they they became they did a lot of great things um, in what they have done. You know, they like everything. It's not that they they've done great catalogs. They have a, a very reasonable product or across the board. They've, you know, really, uh, they, there's not much more you could do. Their only challenge is, you know, how do you make money out of this? And the, the big distortion in our industry is that there was a, a ton of money coming in to companies that weren't, had, didn't have the pressure of making uh, a return with any immediacy, um, like Wayfair, et cetera, et cetera or Amazon, you know, all in there. So that's, that's really had a big effect, I think, on the market. But they themselves have to one day, you know, um, make a return on what they do. Uh, hopefully they do. But so our industry, like a, a company like ours, we've had to evolve as well. And um, 
to do that, um, online became an essential one of the one of the essential components. We've always seen the, the future as a clicks and mortar approach, um, but um, it was more important that because of pricing, uh, if you had too many tiers there, you cannot be. Uh, if you look at uh, again with RH, I mean they had uh, they were giving twenty five percent discount to the interior designer. But they, were, um, they found very quickly that they had to pass that on to the end consumer. And so for the interior designer, there is no more discounting for an interior designer who goes to RH. They only get like a free, they don't have to pay the $100 membership and they don't have to pay for the samples, uh, but that's it. Um, and we find that because they then, RH were facing online competitors. We are ourselves, you know, as, uh, um, you know, for certain items, you have to be in a competitive, uh, you have to, being competitive because people just say, oh, there's chairs and then there are chairs. But a lot of the younger markets say, I want a chair. <laughs> you know? So uh, how do you compete against that? And um, so we've had to re review ourselves. And, but on a, on, and that's uh, it's a worldwide phenomenon. Um, yeah. What made you decide to open your first retail store? Vanity, <laughs> maybe when you really think about it. Um, I was speaking actually to Timothy Alton. Uh, Timothy Alton um, is not uh, over here. They would know him more for what he was supplying to RH, like the cloud sofa and a number of other things. And he has a company called Halo. It's from from China. He's an English guy, um, English friend, and um, a bit like Paul Maitland Smith. They're both from the antiques business in, in the UK. And um, I asked, I remember asking Paul, when did he, he said, he said, and we're talking about his businesses, this is when he, he was um, just had disposed of Maitland Smith. Now, that's going back 20 years already, probably a little bit more. And he said, you know, the only time I ever made from money from this business is when I sold my company. Uh, Paul told me that. And so that was one point. And then, Timothy Alton, you know, you see him on the videos, and if you go to RH and these sofas, and uh, you know, very hardworking, mm, very knowledgeable about. Um, um, he created a, um, a market for himself, and which was really up, was really was worked very well for RH. And he said to me, he said, uh, I was speaking to him a couple of weeks ago in Singapore, and he said, look, maybe I should just maintain just production because working with and putting branding on my things in Asia and everything where he said the challenge there was is the cost and he said you know I, I used to make so much more money just being in the production rather than but but he said look when you have your name above the door you you you're, you you feel happier in what you do is not just uh, you know and just not just plain manufacturing so I understand that I mean um, could we have if we sold the, the products just to everybody um, and just without the branding, yes, you could be so much larger because uh, then I, that what I'd be doing is really just designing, having that manufacturing and offering it to the, the market as a whole. But the, you know, just going unbranded, um, it it's doesn't give you the same sense of fun. But um, in, today it doesn't make so much sense and retail is extremely expensive. So. In our retail move, moving forward, we have strategic retail. So in Beverly Hills, it's cost of lifestyle. So the lifestyle Beverly Hills is recognized the world over to being the epicenter of the wonderful lifestyle. Um, then uh, we will talk about uh, Hollywood. It's the epicenter of uh, you know Dancing with the Stars, where the stars, so we can use that within our marketing. So California is the epicenter for software. So I use that as I said, we do for So actually Los Angeles has a lot of things going for it in as much as to build the branding up of our companies and the acknowledgement of the companies. So we work a lot more going forward with, with that. So that's why we were over there. In the over here on the other side, New York made a lot of sense. New York, um, because it's, we were in New York Design Center, we used to be on the 16th floor. Spent a, a fortune, I think, doing that showroom. It was 20,000 square feet when we opened it. And um, today, he said it was a business model. He said it didn't work. It just so happened that McGuire vacated their space on the on the on the um, on the street level, and I, I know um, Jim uh, Jim Druckmann, the um, the owners of uh, New York Design Center. And if I do, I want to move down. Says, 
And I said, it's just exactly, I was about to ask Jim the same thing before I knew it was available. So it worked out perfectly because now we are dealing with the end consumer, but also it's the door entrance world also into the New York Design Center. So it's the best of both worlds, but it's not just limited to being in the... And in that relationship works well because there's other, everyone else that has their space there is ultimately where we are for our marketplaces beyond CG, then there we have potential partners there for that businesses as well. So it's, um, so I think the, the, the emphasis has moved from dealer and interior designers, excluding the end consumer, to end, um, end consumer and interior designers, um, pretty much excluding the dealer, simply because so many dealers have disappeared from the market in our sector. And, um, and um, so that was one issue, you just, you were, you know, you were trying to, uh, you know, you know to de develop product for a market that was shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. So we had to change the emphasis of the market. And that's done, we said, with, with uh, the, the level that we have to go with with the internet. And internet is, by the way, anyone who thinks that just doing a website is simple, it's not. <laughs> we have probably, even our own website and development, probably have around 200 people working on it because you have to prepare your product in a very different way, the information in a very different way. You have the ability to put a fabric on and to see what it looks like on a video, and the color on the, on, the, on the chair. You want to put it in a floor plan, a wall plan, or in a, in, a, in, in a mood board. We had to create all of those things. And now when you're operating those, they all need to take management and operation. So before you just imprinted a catalog every couple of years, and that was so simple. Um, but nobody looks at catalogs. The youngsters don't look at a cat. They don't look, go to look at a library, um, it w and that's the reality of things. So we had to change. Mm. How does how you design change when you don't think about the dealer as the intermediary, as the curator of your experience to the consumer? You know, if the market had remained where it was, we'd be the happiest people in the world. Um, I recall in the interhall in IHFC building, 1998, that we did $1.2 million in sales. That was 1998. I'd be amazed if anyone down there gets to $100,000 in the market these days. That's how much it's dropped in, in terms of, because the buying was then, they said, look, um, yeah, we'll take uh, two, no, mix, make it three, because we'll put two of those in stock. And, the, and so everything was instant buying. And uh, that was through the dealers. And um, when the dealers started disappearing, because you used to come to market and you wouldn't sell directly to an interior designer, you would say you have to go through a dealer. But as the dealers, through the, each recession, so many of them closed down, then the, the vendors in, in, in markets like High Point started selling directly to the interior designers. The interior designers then were looking for the same discount, one to 50% discount from the retail price which you could, is still doable because you inflate your retail price. But when you go into the end consumers and you have, the, um, you have to sell online, you can't just create a pie in the sky uh, retail price because nobody will buy it and probably will knock you off if they see those prices. So it meant that the, 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 you had to, you, you were going to, I mean, why have so many of our companies in our industry, what happened to them? Why did they die? 20 years ago, they were doing so fabulously well. So why was that? Um, well, the reason, as I say, is, the, is that they were aiming always at the same uh, customer base with the dealers. But if the dealers are not there, and the dealers are not being able to, they're unable to compete with the visual excitement that you see in an RH store, or because it costs a lot of money to refurbish your store, to get every single detail right. And again, they have to show, uh, um, uh, they have to bring profit to their business. But if you say a lot of the RHs, they don't have to do that. There was a whole lot of money that came through the door and they can maintain it. And you know, they've, a lot of the industry that went with RH, uh, sorry, with the traditional store have moved into RH. But if you look at RH, who is their competitor? Wayfair, someone like Wayfair now. Because you know, they, they, right, Wayfair or Perigold. So Wayfair started six years ago. It's already $7 billion in sale. I'll compare that to RH, which is maybe around 40 years in the business. Okay, the real modern RH, you could say seven, eight years, but they have reached two and a half billion dollars in sale. 
but they have all the expensive property and to maintain the catalogs and everybody else. Whereas Mayfair, where, where they expect to be at $12 billion revenue by 2020. So when you look at that, you say, well, you know, you know it's like a bigger fish is coming to eat the, the, the smaller fish. So where do we, we, not, we, um, we admire what companies such as Wayfair do, we admire what RH do. We had to create our own niche in what we were doing. And, um, but unfortunately, those models where there was a, uh, lots and lots of money, we had to always work within a, in a cash flow. So a showroom like this in High Point, it cost us $3,000 per day, 365 days a year to maintain, excluding staff, excluding product. So uh, is there a business case for that? Well, there's a business case when you have enough visitors to market. Uh, you can't make a business case when they're not. And, uh, and but in our case, the type of buyer that we need were going to Milan. And so it's if that is, uh, and the stores of, of, of what we would need, or of our standing, we'd say, they've just been disappearing from the market in the United States. So, you know, you just have to say, well, look, um, 25 years in, in, in High Point, um, we had a great run. I had to look at my health issues. I had to look at the way forward for the company. Where was the writing on the wall? And then I had to make decisions. And, and, um, and I, I, IMC have been, uh, and Bob have been fabulous partners in as much as what we've been working together. And um, I needed to have that talk with, uh, with Bob. I said, Bob, well, this is the situation. I said, um, and uh, we need to move on beyond me. And so um, uh, we're fabulously accommodating and we have reached an agreement. So, um, and so, so I said to, with the team, I'm repositioning the company and getting things straightened out before you're basically effectively taking over. And um, one of the things I always look at, what happened to the demise of Maitland Smith? And Paul was there, did fabulous product. But he had that, understood the touch of magic that he could put in there. How do I ensure that continues in what we do? And that is, a, you know, I say in the same way, it's, it's a, the challenge for me is, the, is that, that's why I, I look at, say, always, as I mentioned earlier on, I look at the brand as being more like a Coco Chanel. Um, and the designers, or I look more like Hollywood set designers, how they understand the pieces. But I have a very uh, well, fabulous uh, team, a drafting team, in, uh, in Java, in Indonesia. So they've been working with me for 20 years. And, um, and they're actually becoming here on Monday, indeed. And uh, they understand my, my design philosophy. But you need to have a, a, um, an overall stylist who says, look, they will understand what Chanel is about or what Karl Lagerfeld did for Chanel. Because Karl Lagerfeld, he came on board and he saw what Chanel had done but he had to make it to that next level. So I see the same thing. You know, I've, if I've done, I may be Christopher Guy, but I say people just look at the brand, it now has to move beyond that, just use the brand. I, I, I personally, I like the, the term CG. You know, um, um, just as, it's not about, I don't have an ego about my name, about being above the door. I have a responsibility for, the, for everyone within the company. And that is my responsibility. And how do you ensure that continuity? Um, and um, as I mentioned, that the one of the challenging things is, you know, how to ensure. Well, our challenging issues in the industry is your distribution of your product, and in ensuring a marketing look. So, so in those cases, marketing look. Think of a high-end brand from the uh, the French markets. Also, the, again, the Chanel's, the Dior's. So where do they position themselves? We have to position ourselves very much in that, in that area. Um, and so again, with a, a Fifth Avenue store, or Rodeo Drive store, and so we like, that's where we are, but we also realize you have to be competitive in the market. You can't just go through pie-in-the-sky pricing that once existed, because um, yeah, the market won't accept it. And, um, and the only way to do that is to reduce the amount of tiers that are um, within your sales. Uh, so really, a lot of it, you have to end up to the end consumer or at least to the interior designer. But an interior designer, you know, the days when you say, well, you can just take 50% of, of a product, 
is no longer there, you know, because it'll, it'll wipe out the suppliers. And I think a lot of the brands that are being wiped out or being diminished is because they maintain the same discounting levels, which really just affected their bottom line. And if, if you looked at the numbers that they were gaining, they lost millions as a result. So we couldn't follow that, that direction. How are you positioning the brand for the future? How do you envision the future? Is it the Christopher Guy brand? Is it the CG brand? Where do you see it being in the US market? Um, you just mentioned you're going to close the showroom. Mm -hmm. um, well, in terms of this showroom, I mean, if we, um, as a beautiful showroom, um, but we see like New York, uh, Los Angeles, sorry, are two online huge part of our business is to move that online, adjusting the pricing to suit more of an online. I'm not saying, so nowadays, if you're in high end, you have to be more an RH pricing brand, maybe plus 20% more or less, but you can't go even 50% above yeah, the pricing. Some items, you know, they, uh, you, it's a reality of it. So, and then now the way we promote the product, the way that we embrace, I said Hollywood, Hollywood globally, is your best marketing opportunity. As I mentioned, Dancing with the Stars. Beverly Hills, I mean, um, where does the brand come from? The Italian brands in the rest of the world, uh, they use this always Milano. And so in furniture, globally, I'm not saying in the United States, but globally, it's the number one brand you can put onto a, a product if they say they were from Milan. We're not from Milan. And so I say, well, what about Beverly Hills? I mean, we don't make the things, but Beverly Hills lifestyle, people understand that. But then there's other challenges when you have, you know, in, in the Chinese, um, like Chinese dealers were concerned that if we emphasize the Beverly Hills too much and there's a trade war with China, then they'll have a negative on, on selling that in within China. So it's, you know, it, it is interesting things. There's always dynamics at play. Um, but I see that this as is, um, I think we, we will look in what we do. I mean, mirror frames, we don't have a natural competitor because really what we do in the mirror frame collection was where we started. And there's, there really are really fabulous items, which is, we don't, there's not, well, say, oh, it's either this company or that company. Really in the world, there is no other company that does what we do. And that's very rare in what we do. But we have a fabulous collection of sound. I think in the, in, when we get, you know, 50% um, of what we do is actually upholstery. So um, that's his major. And again, we didn't follow the norms. We were, you know, they were particularly in like, the occasional chairs. That, so we said you have a, an identity there. If you walk into the showroom, you would, it's like if you walk into a Chanel room, it's a Chanel. I think if you walk in the showroom, you say, well, this is Christopher Guy. You, you wouldn't, if you know the, the brand, you wouldn't mistake it for someone else. So keeping the DNA, and DNA has been about curvature but increasingly we're doing more straight lines. Um, but not straight lines, just to get the balance there. Uh, so um, I see that, you know, so when I look at the branding as positioning, it has to be as a, um, the term, I say luxury, something that, um, pieces that you aspire to, to owning. Um, um, and um, so globally, we'll use Hollywood. Probably as long as the trade war doesn't uh, come into effect with China the Beverly Hills branding will be forming much more part of our positioning. CG, well, CG came along because in China they couldn't pronounce Christopher Guy. And so they would say Seje. And Seje um, in Chinese, Mandarin, I'm not pronouncing it right, but it actually means lion. So it was, you know, it was very fortunate. And in Java, where we make everything, C uh, CG, means gold <laughs> so it was just uh, in the in the Javanese language so um, gold lion okay gold lion if you guys if we could call it gold lion that'd be a typical Chinese name wouldn't it but CG is easier to remember and actually as a as, a, as putting the two words together they look good together so I've always believed that things naming is is very very prime very very key um, you know so uh, Christopher Guy or CG, I mean our website shows CG, it may tell a story of, of but um, there's always a discussion, you know, how much to maintain one or the other. And again, I think CG for me is fine. Again, it can, 
depends which language you pronounce it in. It's like it does, doesn't work in every language, but it works in our main markets. You say you're designing so that there are designs for years to come. Mm -hmm. So as you project design out into the future, mm. does it, how much does it differ from what you're designing today? What is your vision of what the future of high-end well, luxury is? It's interesting if you look in, um, if you go into a game, go into a Dior, go to Chanel, what's really changed uh, from, well, 50 years ago, 40 years ago? You know, like Chanel's still using the tweeds, they still, you know, what is, uh, what did, um, you know, if you look at it, it's, it's a cleaner look. We had, you know, we're starting with lots and lots of carving. That's why we, we, actually one of our original logos was carving out a piece of history. And um, so there was more intricacy in the amount of, which the market does not want. And <laughs> unfortunately, when it does want it again, it won't be there because nobody will know how to do it. No more, if you wanted to set up a carving factory in the United States, it'd be impossible. Yeah, yeah, because nobody has the ability. You have carving machines, but they can only go so far. A carving machine can't do the undercuts, for instance. If you like, let's be like over there, it's an impossibility to do. You go, you up, it is, it's really is a 365. You can only do that with hand carving. Um, <coughs> so what I do is I said, I look at what are the dynamics of the collection. So the mirrors um, and uh, mirrors are like, think of uh, a necklace or an earring or be that. So really in the future, if you are um, a jewelry designer, it could contribute a lot to what we do. Uh, so I think it was a jewel. Um, so again, um, one of the questions is, as we've been posing, said, should we have two lines? Should you have CG decor and CG lifestyle? Because CG decor, you, when you're selling online, people there's instant gratification, I want it tomorrow. When it's selling to the dealers, well, they're all planning for uh, six months down the line. And so what they want. So that was a huge change. That's why it's not so easy just to go from here to there. You have to really to look at everything that you were doing. Um, but to see in particularly at all, I said, if you look in the fabric industry, <laughs> remember, we used to go down and look in the latest fabrics. Nobody does now, is because it's just, a, you know, it's, it's earthly colors. Um, um, performance fabrics um, and, uh, and, um, and people are directly buying the mills. So not even the fabric houses were, had their own mills, the big ones in the United States. They were buying from mills and now manufacturers buy directly from the mills and now it's feasible because nobody's looking for patterns and so nobody carries pattern anymore. So the, that, remember that large beautiful part of the, the fabric industry is no longer there and they were following apparel. Or, um, yeah, the, the, uh, and the clothing industry, which everyone now is wearing plain, they're not wearing flowers, or it's just, you know, everyone walking down the street all looks pretty much the same. So it's, in a way, it's easier to plan forward, um, but it's always looking for those things you put special details. So we, we, we got into creating accessories, not because we wanted to, but um, the accessories that were out there to complement weren't of the level that we needed. So we, you know, then I said, we're creating our own, like, Let's say how we got into mosaics. Again, I needed something to make a life in a lifestyle statement. But if you have that, you know, um, even a mosaic which is takes months to complete by a team, you know, it's um, and there's so much detail that goes into those. There's still, if you're going online, you have to have to um, be able to deliver within a time frame. And uh, so, time frame becomes very key. Um, where does that maintain? Because if you if you distribute globally. Our advance, one advantage we have is that we make everything in-house in one location, which is our workshops in Java. So we don't make it in China and Vietnam. Now everything is controlled in-house. That's one, a big advantage. The, if you say in the United States um, or large markets like this, then you should hold stock. But when you do so many variation, how do you hold that stock in a market like this? So if you were differentiating the things and say CG decor and CG lifestyle, well, you know, if you're buying a dining table and you're a certain finish, you're going to expect to wait X amount of time. Or if you want to, um, um, but, um, but the decor side, people expect that to have that, you know, pretty instantly. So, you know, we're balancing that. So we, we look at our line, this is a CG decor item, even though we don't promote it maybe that way. But, you know, that is a piece that has to be um, a, a far quicker delivery time. 
Um, and if, I think if I was doing anything, like I said, if I was only doing all the decor, the thing is, you have fun when you do a lifestyle collection. Uh, decor is just only half the story. But financially, actually it makes a lot more sense just to be doing the decor side of it rather than trying to do dining tables, etc., etc. Because dining tables, a lot of people do dining tables. Um, but nobody does what we do in decor. No one does them. Um, and so, um, and it's easily stockable. It's much easier to transport to get from A to B. A dining table, they deliver something, there's a little mark and a scratch in it. And you've had it, you know, you would return. And so, I know like RH, um, when we had spoken to a logistics company, their return rate was 27% of returns. When I spoke to them, it was three years ago when I spoke. They've, they've, where they get through this is, okay, there's a problem with this table, straight to an outlet. So mm -hmm. they're, they're one of their outlets. Actually, we, we, we actually, um, in the software side, we have something uh, which we'll launch later this year called Outlet Decor. Outlet Decor will be for multiple brands um, to um, really to move their products, um, uh, their products to move those, um, like I say, it's particularly if you do a show like High Point or any showroom. If you really want to bring a new collection in, you have to do something with what you have left over. Many times it ends up in a warehouse and then it gets forgotten about. So we see like as a total ecosystem, okay, you have your brand, then you can move anything that, um, also marketplace has something called iDesign, which is how to bring like-minded companies to be get into the projects. Because as a single brand, you, you know, it's like I say, I always say it's like one man going over the trenches, you'll soon get shot. And so you have to have a um, creative marketplace. And this is something actually we've worked on some time ago. But when we had a slowdown in the industry, we had to see where we were putting our, our funds. Um, and, um, but we had to get CG sorted out first. We had to, um, outlet decor was very critical to move on product, which was just gathering dust um, in the warehouses and then I design, which is like-minded companies where you're able to sell into those projects. So um, there's, there has been an ecosystem there going forward. So CG will have its niche. Um, and um, I'm not, I, I, sometimes I was concerned about how CG would fall, but actually the simplicity in the line, I would, if, you do not, if you're doing a trade shows, every show people comes up, what is new? What do you have new? When you have a retail showroom, nobody walks into a showroom and says, what's new? They say, well, I like that chair and I like that. So you don't have that, that pressure of having to create new items all the time. And that's a big benefit. And it reduces your overall head, overhead costs. So I'd rather do you know, more of that, but you have to have an ecosystem of companies to rid yourself of uh, items which you are doing. If you're Chanel, you can afford to burn them. You know, so if we, is the collection didn't sell, they send it, they put it through a shredder and destroy everything. Um, RH, um, they put it through their outlet. And don't think you're getting a great discount when you go through outlet. If you look at their pricing structure with an outlet, um, their outlets, it's, it's, it, people think they're getting a better deal. But you know, there's, I think there's around 50 stores that they have of their main store and over 30 stores of, which are outlets. So you see the balance is, um, and that's because the returns that go through there. So they don't question, you don't like it, no problem, we put it back into our outlet. So it's like a second distribution arm, and um, um, it's, it's smart what they 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 have done. But um, so um, now, it's that my team is that they'll they'll be carrying that all forward, going moving ahead. So, over the course of any career, there are times where you make choices that, in retrospect, become turning points. As you reflect on the turning points of your career, what were some of those choices that you made that moved your career this way or that way? <laughs> I think, well, one was you should stick to what you know, stick to what you believe in, stick in with, um, when I started, I said starting from ground zero, really in our industry. Having, and I was stuck in a carving village in Indonesia, with really no, no guidance at all. I was like, okay, now I'm here. Okay, I got all the craftspeople here. What do I do, you know? And you have to make something from zero. But I wasn't influenced by anybody. And so uh, that was very helpful. 
I think if going forward, I said if it was really to do something, um, I, you know, when you go into um, like I say upholstery, you have so many third parties. You have to arrange your fabrics from different houses. We get a lot of us uh, from Italy, and you're reliant on what they're delivering. Or in our industry, COM, you're reliant on the, the delivery of that COM in a timely manner. And you, you, none of the suppliers work in the same way. So there's more, more challenges there with COM. It's which is why if you go to RH or sort of company, they don't do any COM. But nobody's questioning they, they, they do. It was much more of an interior design. So actually moving forward, we will only offer COM to the uh, interior designer, but not to the end consumer, unless they go through an interior designer. We will still continue to promote the interior designer, um, even through our own websites. But we also call a stylist, online stylists, um, so online stylists are able to use our tools online um, and they can work, they don't have to, because an interior designer is there you know, to change or whatever. A stylist is able to help with our products, but also the end consumer is able to use the same style tools to add any of their only third party products onto them as well. Yeah. So yes, it's a slightly different market. Yeah. Um, are there some paths that you wish you had taken that you didn't? Or some that you didn't, that you wish you had? I think I wish that I'd spent more time on the China market. Um, even though we've done very well in China, we put more emphasis in the US market than in the China market. Where China market is, you know, anything that is growing, um, you benefit from the growth. Um, the market in the US was really a changing industry and over there um, was a difference. So maybe that could be one area. I wish that when I got into the lifestyle collection that I had separated my CG um, decor side away from the lifestyle industry so that you didn't lose what you had there. So, it's, um, yeah. So, um, and uh, so, um, you know, that helps a lot. Um, um, so there's little things there. I'm probably maintaining my present yearly in the Milan show. Um, that would help. Um, Milan show is, is credibility, uh, global credibility, um, because it's the it's the it's the the furniture fashion capital of the world. Um, and so there's little things there, nothing really major. Um, and if I really had a world that, you know, it was, has the internet benefited us? No, it brings different opportunities, but a lot of the challenges in our industry is because of the internet. But it's not only the internet by and large, it says it's the financing of the internet, what these large companies have been able to have so much money plowed in them without having to deliver a return in any short period. So it's no longer, I say, what happens next month, and let me have a look at my balance sheet, is looking and say, well, by year 2030, we expect to be, uh, hopefully be there. And uh, yeah, so, which is actually much more of the way that the Chinese and the Japanese looked at their investments. So Asian investments, they look at much, much longer term. So investors would look into what they do. Unfortunately, I never had any investment into the company. So I always owned 100% owned everything for better or worse, um, but at least I was in control of whatever we had. Um, but those companies have really truly grown. Well, two ways of looking at them. A lot of the companies that are out of business today is because they borrowed too much, for leverage too much, and wiped out by um, you know, um, private equity or coming in and just stripping, basically stripping a lot of companies, which they had too much debt on their books. and. It even happens with toys, let's say, companies such as Toys R Us. It wasn't that Toys R Us were not selling enough toys, it's that they, went, they had so much, uh, um, so much borrowing was bought into it, which was a benefit to the private equity. So even when they closed down, they still were making, uh, but it, you know, the, for the businesses themselves, they were over leveraged. So we've never leveraged ourselves. I think, um, and by not leveraging ourselves, um, yeah, you, you never know when is the right time or the wrong time. If you re leverage yourself on the wrong time, it can, yeah, so, um, it could be very detrimental, yeah, so. 
what do you do and where do you go to find peace, to relax? What is, is your happy place? Um, I think always traveling, I've always I've enjoyed uh, always traveling. I think um, I've always, um, I, um, I always admire seeing beautiful things. 